Dick Danico asked me if I was going to speak this morning because I had a tie on. <laughs> I refused to answer because I knew he'd leave. <laughs> the parables today, we, it pastor has been speaking parables, and our parable today is about the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in Luke 16, um, 19 to 31. Uh, and we'll look at that in just a second. Sometimes Jesus' parables are difficult to understand, but they're stories of intent, so it's worth looking for the ageless wisdom that's buried in them. The story is told of a sculptor chipping away at an enormous block of stone, and an observer asked him what he was sculpting, and he told him an elephant. And the observer asked, how do you sculpt an elephant? After a few minutes of consideration, the sculptor said, it's really very simple. You just chip away anything that doesn't look like an elephant. So we're going to chip away at the parable today and hopefully find the elephant in it. The parable is Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dog came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to you, to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come also into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. It's easy to make more of an anecdote than one might have been intended. But Christ's stories are meant to bring greater depth and feeling to our lives. <clears throat> and it's no stretch for us to understand that Jesus is addressing us today just as he did the Pharisees centuries ago. And Luke's, Luke helps us by placing this particular parable in the context of Pharisees' ideas and attitudes about wealth. They love money. They saw wealth as evidence of God's approval and acceptance of them. And conversely, they felt that poverty was a sign of God's curse. The textual context is the preceding parable about the unrighteous steward, a story about the proper use of wealth. At that parable's conclusion, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. The Pharisees mocked Jesus, and they ridiculed him for his teaching. So he challenged their worldview. He said, God knows hearts, and what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So there it is. He basically said, you guys have a distorted view about the meaning of life, 
And then he told them this dis disconcerting story about the severe consequences of their obsession with and their misguided uh, stewardship of wealth. Wealth certainly could be a blessing, and it could be from God, but to view it as a potential ultimate curse was a startling concept for them. Was Jesus saying that the improper use of wealth is causal and eternal damnation? That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? He's the one who brings us God's grace. What does wealth have to do with grace? If we hold to the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and we do, that by grace we have been saved through faith, and that it's not of our own doing, it's God's gift to us, and is, the is not the result of our works, so that none of us could boast, then salvation is God's precious gift, to, gracious gift to us. It's not earned. Is the use of our wealth then really an important factor in how and where we will live for eternity? But this is the thing about God's grace. It isn't cheap grace. Grace is God's forgiving your sins and my sins, coming alongside of us in life, and ultimately giving us a secure spot in heaven, not because of any merit of our own, but because of his profound love for you and me, and because of the atoning blood of Christ. Yet, Scripture repeatedly tells us that an authentic work of grace in a person's life is transformative. Salvation changes us forever. We become new creations that are spiritually reborn, and there will be evidence of God's grace in the life of those who profess him. That profound truth is evident throughout Old and New Testaments, and it's what Jesus repeatedly taught us as part of being a disciple. God always reckoned obedience as evidence of belief. And Jesus told his disciples that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. God has been enormously generous to us. He's lavished us with his love. And the apostle John said that, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. <clears throat> Today's parable reinforces this idea that loving God will always mean loving our neighbor. So how does that translate into the idea that how I use my possessions indicates where I will spend eternity? Well, the parable this morning is about fortune and misfortune and the reversals of fortune and misfortune. It is a story of contrasting values between the secular world and the kingdom of God. It's a story of two lives, a very wealthy man and a poor man, a poor suffering man. Although they lived in close proximity and could physically have touched each other, they never did. Essentially, they inhabited two different worlds just feet apart. One of these men lived a, great, a life of great luxury, seemingly callously carefree, dressing in five fine clothing, and feasting sumptuously. His life consisted of good things. His neighbor, the beggar, the other man was caught in a cycle of poverty and physical sickness. He led a miserable existence. He experienced bad things. He was unfortunate in health and wealth. He was so crippled that somebody had to carry him to the, beggar's, to the rich man's gate, where he lay covered with sores that dogs licked. His misfortune was so great he had to beg for food. And we can envision that sad picture. This poor, crippled, suffering man lay begging for crumbs of food outside the gate of plenty. Lazarus needed the rich man. But what is more interesting is that the rich man needed Lazarus. He didn't act as though he needed anybody. 
Why did he need Lazarus? Well, he was sick. He had a fatal malady, a hidden illness that affected his vision and his heart. He had selective blindness and couldn't see the needy world around him. His heart was cold and indifferent. He was spiritually sick, and that sealed his fate. Lazarus' presence was a warning about the nature of his heart, about the need for spiritual healing. And on Judgment Day, others might argue with God's wisdom about being damned to hell. But this rich man would have no argument, no excuse. The presence of Lazarus was a character test for him, and he flunked it. His treatment of Lazarus proved he had no heart for the things of God, but was an idol worshiper, choosing to seek fulfillment, pleasure, and security, and money rather than God. He had no recognizable need for either God or Lazarus, and he saw neither one of them. As for Lazarus, there was a wordless wisdom about him. We never hear him speak or complain. He makes no accusations, no criticism, doesn't point his finger or demand. He has no voice. His suffering is not heard. It is as if the world had pushed the mute button and had walked merrily around him. Our passage said he desired to be fed from whatever fell from the rich man's table. Those crumbs probably were pretty tasty, but they were literally food off the fine linen dinner napkins, and that was his lot. He could not change it, and as near as we could tell, he accepted it. Somewhat ironically, Lazarus' name means God helps. That name given to such a suffering person would seem ludicrous and mockery to this world. But despite his extreme suffering, Lazarus trusted God. From the text, we deduce that he was a man of faith. After his death, we can locate him in the comfort and safety of, of eternal life in Abraham's bosom, a metaphor for heaven, a place that is attained through knowledge and belief and obedience to God and his word. And Abraham made that point very clear to the rich man. We don't know whether or not Lazarus understood any greater purposes for his existence or that he was training for something better. Maybe he did understand what the Apostle Paul expressed, that the sufferings of this present time are, worth, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But in this odd way, which is probably unappreciated by either man, Lazarus' life was being used by God to define the rich man's life. Someone has made an interesting observation that we do God's will or patiently suffer it. These men exemplify that. He was a rich man who could have fulfilled a ministry that benefited his Jewish brother, but he didn't. And here was a poor man patiently suffering. Lazarus' presence at the gate gave this man daily opportunity to repent, but he did not. Worse still is that the rich man not only ignored Lazarus and God, but assured and maintained that separation by that separation by erecting a barrier which intentionally kept him from seeing or being challenged by the world of Lazarus or by the commands of God. Scripture calls it his gate. That gate symbolizes the eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear, the attitudes and the worldview that diminish and devalue, devalue others and God. His gate was essentially unbelief toward God and lack of comp compassion for others. His gate was a false contentment and satisfaction that kept out unwanted annoyances and obscured his vision of the miseries around him. His philosophy was out of sight, out of mind. If he couldn't see the awful state of this sad figure lying at his gate, he wouldn't be reminded of the obligations to him. 
His selfish conscience was seared and would not be pricked by guilt or responsibility. Think what a different world might have unfolded for poor and fortunate Lazarus if that gate had been opened to him. However, on the other side of it, the rich man lived in his complacency, untouched by the wisdom of God, by the principles of life that God had set out. And unfortunately, his short-sightedness, neglect, and rejection of his neighbor would lead to severe consequences. These thoughts should make us consider whether we isolate or insulate ourselves from the great needs outside our doors. And at what cost do we shrug those needs off? And what idols do we have? Whatever they are, they simply serve ourselves and nobody else. Do we possess the spirit of help and sacrifice? Or do we have the selfish spirit of bias and neglect? Parables are meant for us to insert ourselves into the story, to find ourselves there. The rich man who has no name easily becomes examples of us who share his mentality about the importance of wealth. His problem was not wealth per se, but his love of money, his blinding greed, his lack of acknowledgement and gratitude for what God had given him. His problem was not so much how he used his money, but it is how he didn't use it. His sin was a sin of omission. Money was simply a tool that revealed his heart. And the rich man is also a model of religious people. In this case, the Pharisees who called Abraham father. But he's also a prototype of those of us who ignore God's word or those of us who are quite content to think we are acceptable to God as we are, who are reliant upon our good pedigree or good character, who are ignorant in our own goodness. Does it really matter if you or I grew up in a Christian home, learned good values, and were, ba and were baptized? Well, bully for us. Will that secure our eternal destiny? Will honesty and integrity and avoidance of all things bad enable us to stand before holy God? We should be asking whether we know or if we do know, do we believe or just ignore the teachings of God's word? Unbelief, ignorance, neglect were crucial and clearly a fatal problem for the rich fellow who did not have a biblical view of his neighbor. Lazarus was a non-person to him and to that society. But herein lies an interesting twist. Despite the arrogance of this pharisaical rich guy, it turned out that Lazarus, the poor, cursed beggar, was actually the chosen one. The deciding factor was belief, not heritage. Such a con concept would have been infuriating to the Pharisees who held their children, chosen race as a big bargaining chip with God. However, faith as worked out in obedience to God is the important factor. If this rich man had had a heart for God, he would have heard Moses and the prophets. He would have known that God loved the poor and that his neighbor was his responsibility. Those truths have been declared from the earliest times of Israel's existence. God's law, which was lit literally written in stone, clearly stated, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. The book of Deuteronomy gives instruction gave instruction to give freely and ungrudgingly to one's brother in need. But there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Had he read Jeremiah, who would have known that delighting the Lord meant knowing God and managing riches in the practice of love, justice, and righteousness. And more importantly, had he listened to God's word, he would have found wisdom and understanding and protection and salvation. This wealthy guy's lack of demonstrable love for others 
and his ignorance of his or his disobedience of God's commands is symptomatic of something so deep that it led to his damnation. And all of this fits with what James said, that faith without works is dead. And the apostle John reinforced the same idea in his first epistle as he pointedly reminds us that God's great love for us will be manifested in us if we are his children. If, he were, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him, he asks. Well, the rich man died and had a funeral, and probably a large one. But while they were celebrating his life and saying nice things about him, the rich man was actually in torment in hell. Lazarus died too, and apparently nobody cared, nobody noticed, there was no death certificate, no record of his burial. But he had a beautiful homecoming. He was carried this time, not by someone to the rich man's gate, but by God's angels to Abraham's bosom. We have two men who have been separated by a gate in life and now by a chasm in death. Christ calls this place Hades. What a story of eventual ironic reversals. Wealth and material blessings meant nothing in death. They failed the rich man, and they'll fail us too if we look to them for security and purpose. Justice prevails. The beggar becomes rich and completely comforted and healed. The rich man becomes a beggar in hell. He was destitute and knew what it was to have unmet needs. He was thirsty and worried. The tables had turned. Now he was in anguish and torment and pleading for mercy and asking that Lazarus bring him water. But this time, an eternal gate separated them. Notably, the rich man called Abraham father, and Abraham referred to him as child. The Pharisees understood this imagery. Abraham was revered as the father of their chosen race. But there was some misunderstanding about what being chosen meant for the Jews. They had been given the law, the oracles of God, the patriarchs, the covenants, the prophets. However, their role was to have been to testify to the nation about God's greatness and glory and wonders he had done. They had been chosen to be the race through whom the Messiah would come to save mankind. Nonetheless, Scripture clarifies the point that being a child of God is not a matter of heritage, but comes to those who have faith in this promised Messiah. They are the children of Abraham. Paul stated that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But the children of the promise accounted as offspring. Remember also, Abraham was the father of many nations, not just Israel. Once Jesus had an encounter with the Pharisees who were seeking ways to kill him, their sarcastic question was, are you greater than our father Abraham? His response is very important. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Essentially, he said that being a child of Abraham meant more than an than a ancestral relationship. It means being like Abraham. It means being a person of faith. The acceptable work of Abraham was his belief. <clears throat> In that same conversation with the Pharisees, Christ said, whoever is of God, hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So if one is of God, he listens and acts upon what God says. Faith will be evident in obedient works. The Apostle Paul continued this theme in his letter to the Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, uh, heirs according to the promise. So how does this tie into the parable? The question arises as to what is the basis of God's judgment? Why eternal blessing for the beggar and eternal damnation for the rich man? Both men in this account were Jewish. They were descendants of Abraham. But one ended up in hell and the other in paradise. So obviously, race, familiar relationships are not the ticket for entering into the state of bliss and blessing. On the face of it, we might think the rich man deserved hell. He had been selfish, had not shared his good fortune, had no conscience about, his, about social injustices, and had no evidence of good works in his life. But is that how God judges? What about Lazarus, who was totally unable to do good works? He was totally incapacitated, too sick and crippled and poor to earn or buy his way into heaven. He could neither help himself or anybody else. His situation reminds us of the thief on the cross whom Jesus granted entrance into paradise. That man was nailed to a cross and had no ability to use, arms, use his arms or his legs. He had no good works, but was crucified for evil deeds. So the basis for judgment and eternal destiny can't be the performance of a good life. <clears throat> the parable shows us really about the working grace of God. Abraham is a picture of faith, and his bosom is a place for those of faith. And we can expand that thought further with, since Abraham is the father of many nations and the father of the promised Messiah, who is the Savior, who has blessed the nations by atoning for the sins of the world, Abraham's bosom could easily represent the eternal rest of all people of faith, those of every tribe and nation that will make up the population of heaven. So in this imagery, Abraham's bosom is the hope of which the Apostle Peter spoke, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this parable, Abraham concisely spells out the qualifications for a person to be held in his bosom. When the rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his five brothers to repent from living lives that would bring them to hell, he thought such a miracle would have the needed impact upon his brothers. But Abraham said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that somebody should rise from the dead. So Abraham essentially said that even such a huge miracle as somebody returning from the dead would not encourage anybody to become saved. It is only the word of God that brings people to faith. The Apostle Paul agreed when he explained it this way to the Roman believers. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Internalization of what, Christ, what God says is what saves. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Christ's miracles, even the raising of Lazarus from the dead and his own resurrection, were evidence of who he is and the power of God. But responding to the gospel is what saves. It is the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes. And that is true today. We ignore the gospel at our own peril. peril. And that was the rich man's fatal mistake. He did not see his life in the context of God of God's word to him and did not apply it to his life. And the question is, do we? There was no demonstrable evidence that the rich man knew or was obedient to the words from Moses and the prophets. No evidence that he loved God, no fruit of righteousness. He was not a person of faith, and sadly, 
he wasn't saved. So what are we to take away from this parable? <clears throat> First of all, poverty is prevalent, and we can and should seek to do something about it. It is always with us and needs relief. The contemporary reality of this story clearly jumps out as us. Many of us have visited extreme poverty in the DR and in the Caribbean. Some of you have seen it in Asia, in Mexico, and other places in the world. It's evident in our cities, in the shelters, in the food kitchens, and the streets where the addicted and mentally ill shoot up, tent out, defecate, and at night lie on grates for warmth. Ghettos and slums exist within a few, within a few city blocks of thriving business districts with towering skyscrapers and treasured windowed corner offices. The answer to poverty may be multifactorial, addressing mental health issues and educational and skill needs, providing jobs, parents in the home, and supporting strong family values. The government has its role, but the poor are our brothers. They wait at our gate. They need what we can offer. So this is the problem for the Christian and for the Christian church. We are told in Proverbs to honor the Lord with your wealth and to not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do so. We erect gates too, don't we? The worst one, of course, is the door of unbelief that shuts out God and does not open to Jesus at all. He stands and knocks and asks admission to be involved in our lives and to lead us into the way everlasting. Have we shut that door on him? And there are barriers which prevent us from sharing our love. We may need to address personal attitudes, socioeconomic barriers, racial or religious barriers, or even gender barriers. Second, wealth may be a blessing, <clears throat> but the pursuit of affluence can become a huge hindrance to entering into the kingdom of God because it becomes a major temptation to neglect God and others. Christ is warning us against idolatry, about loving things more than loving God. We have already seen this in the parables of the rich fool and the great banquet. Even though prosperity may come with hard work, our possessions are not our own. We are but stewards of what God has given us. There is a right way to use our material blessings. They are to be generously shared with those less fortunate. As Christians, we should have philanthropic hearts, hearts that love and give and share and see and meet needs. The way we use our material resources and spend our time tells a great deal about us and about our priorities and beliefs. The flip side is that great generosity and philanthropy don't have any causal effect on our salvation. This parable explains that if we are saved, if we know the mercy and forgiveness of God, we will be merciful. Using our resources for the cause, causes of Christ is an important indicator of our truly redeemed nature. Third, and without question, Christ is teaching the Pharisees that there is a life of consciousness and consequences beyond death, and that there will be judgment for the way we have viewed and utilized our resources, and in this case, wealth. But more importantly, the teaching is that entering into the kingdom depends on whether our hearts have been transformed by God's grace. Good performance in this life will not save us, but we'll identify whether we know Christ or not. Faith is what counts for righteousness, not the goodness that we have done. Our lives reflect who we are, and if we're Christians, our lives will re reflect Christ, who is in us. 
Clearly, what God has to say in his word is of utmost importance to our spiritual and eternal well-being. He has spelled out the principles of healthy living and how his saving and empowering grace will help us live, live it regardless of our circumstances. If we love God, we'll love others. This story is also one of great possibilities. Even a rich fool can become wise when guided by God's word. God has provided everlasting life to all who come to him in faith. And this passage does another thing. It leaves us with several lingering questions for consideration. Are we seeing what God has for us to do? Do we have a Lazarus in our lives? Who lives at my gate? Who lives at your gate? And who lives at the gate of UBC? Let's take a couple of minutes for reflection.